0: Bengali women and the the struggles and and gentrification's impact on those women and I think it's important to remember that a lot of these women made their communities in these areas with women from their generation so when gentrification impacts these families they have no choice but to leave that area which means that women become more and more isolated because then it means their social circle their their friends you know their girlfriends who are their you know their lifeline beyond their sort of whatever everyday other tasks they have you know
1: Hi, and a warm welcome to season four of Brown Don't Frown podcast. I hope you're well and safe wherever you are. BDF's first episode went live in October 2019, and since then, BDF has brought three seasons and over 40 incredible guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I hope you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energised and inspired. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Brown Don't Frown. Leidra Manoush is uh, an independent campaign group which empowers and educates Bengalis and Bangladeshis in the UK and I'm really pleased to announce that we have two uh, representatives from the organisation joining us today. Uh, and a bit more about Nidra Manush. it celebrates the rich histories of the diaspora and also challenges the issues facing women, working class communities and people of colour. They have two core objectives which centre around the celebration and education of the diaspora's radical histories and campaign and intervention work to address issues directly facing the diaspora, domestically and overseas. So to begin with, I think it would be wonderful to have the guests explain a bit more about themselves. So joining us today, we have Fatima, Rajina and Hajira. Welcome to today's show to both of you. Hi, Tanya. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you Hi. very much for being here. So it would be great to know a bit more about yourself. So uh, Fatima, do you want to go first?
0: Sure. Um, so first of all, uh, thank you for, for having me and, and um, both of us uh, on the show. Show, um, to speak about Um So, my name is Fatima Regina. I'm an academic and a researcher at the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre at De Montfort University. I did my PhD on the British Bangladeshi community at SOAS and following. Uh, my PhD I did another big project on the Bangladeshi community um, uh, beyond uh, London and looked at uh, Bangladeshis in uh, East London, um, Luton, Birmingham and LA um, looking at transnationalism and citizenship so yeah so my research area itself focuses in on the Bangladeshi community, uh, identity, racism and Islamophobia.
1: Amazing and Hajar, a bit more about yourself?
2: Um, Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, my name is Ajara Begum. I'm part of Nutramanosh as well. Um, I do not have as extensive a research background at all. Um, I'm a programme manager at King's College London um, on a project that helps um, increase access to higher education for refugees, um, primarily refugees based in Jordan and Lebanon. Um, But outside of that, Ever since uni, I've been kind of involved in student politics. Um, I was a officer at, at UCL many years ago now. Um, so I've been interested in like race, racial um, inequalities, um, Islamophobia, things like that, um, and have been involved with various groups to try and um, kind of tackle these issues. Um, most recently, I've I organized with Abolitionist Futures, which is a campaign group um, of academics and activists trying to. I guess, increase the understanding um, and knowledge around abolition in the UK. That's wonderful. Thank you so
1: much to both of you for sharing um, a bit more about yourselves. Uh, you sound you both sound really impressive. You've got, obviously, a lot of extensive experience. Um, and it's wonderful to have you both here. And I'm sure that today you'll be able to share a lot of insights and knowledge from your own experience and from your, your own research and professional experience as well. I think to start off with, it'll be nice to warm up talking a bit more about, um, I guess, a bit of a personal story for myself, really, just to open open up the floor to a wider conversation. So for me, uh, I spent the first decade of my life in Tower Hamlets. Uh, the gentrification of Banglatown over the last few years has been devastating to see. Uh, and after reading the Runnymede Trust's recent report, Beyond Town, the consequences have become re- very real uh, for me and for a lot of um, friends that I grew up with within Tower Hamlets but I know that we're also today very keen to spotlight the fact that there are so many other Bengali and Bangladeshi communities within the UK which we should also talk about so I'm under no illusions about that um, but I wanted to say to open up a bit more about uh, wanting to find out from you how you see the future of Bangla town in the face of curry houses disappearing for example and with this new wave of regeneration uh do you think that this is an inevitable response to changing consumer demand living standards economic growth preference for you know certain dietary requirements gentrification or do you think that there is a maybe a wider motivation at play which is essentially um you know ethnic social cleansing
0: i um, think um hajira would be I think her yeah. should start us off because she's from Tower Hamlets um yeah, okay.
2: Um, but maybe if I start giving a bit more of the just my view on it from someone who mm-hmm. lives in Hamlets and then I'd love to hear um, more of the academic side of things because I know you know a lot more about the realities of what's happened and um, based on the research that you've done um but yeah so I've always lived in Tower Hamlets born here still live in Tower Hamlets um and the change of the streets, even the building that I'm living in right now is a new build um, in Bow, and it's very different <laughs> area to what it used to be like a few a few years ago. Um, and I think it's interesting that when people often talk about um, areas changing and regeneration, it's sold as a good thing. Um, like there's been money pumped into an area to try and make it a nicer place to live. But actually what I think it means is um, people are priced out. So my I could never afford to permanently, um, like to buy a house in this area. I could never afford to kind of live here properly. Even now um, I'm moving further and further out from uh, Shadwell where my mom lives. Um, because the rent is just so high. Um, So yeah, I think it's interesting who is this regeneration then for, if it's not for the people who are already living here, if they're the ones being priced out. Um, And I guess I remember from when I was in school and, you know, like Canary Wharf and things, it was a very specific part of London that you walk to and the area is different. And actually, if you walk, I remember I used to walk to work and back from work and the streets would be different you can tell when you've come to the area where they don't pay as much in terms of cleaning the streets and things like that. Um, So, but slowly, slowly that radius has extended and it's not so much that I think the area is changing. I think the city is kind of creeping in. Um, And that then means of course, like the people who live here or who are living here are priced out, they're having to move away. I also just pick up on like the the shops that you talk about like I remember from where we used to live the streets near us like Cannon Street and stuff there used to be like sari shops and Asian clothes shops all of those have now closed down so if we want to do our e-shopping or wedding shopping or whatnot there's really only two or three options left for us whereas before almost every other street there'll be at least one sari shop like e-shopping used to be such a thing, like you'd go from street to street, area to area to try out all the different shops to find the nicest thing that you could possibly find. Whereas now like there's basically Green Street or Open Lane and that's basically it, Um, which is a shame. I mean, part of that could be the the things that people are interested in buying. But I think actually the bigger thing is the shopkeepers being priced out again for rent. and like you have instead in these places you have cafe shops and things like that but the cost of these coffees the local school kids would not be buying coffees and things like that or sandwiches from these shops um so again it brings the question who who are these shops for Because I certainly don't think it's for the community that's already living here or was living here
0: Fatima did you want to add to that as well sure um I mean, just hearing that from Hajira, it's 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 pretty accurate, the picture. Mm-hmm. Um Hajira's just point uh, painted of uh Brick Lane and it's mm-hmm. sort of um very changing, rapidly changing um image um of the area. And um I mean it, your your question you ask about you know curry houses disappearing. Um, but I, I think what we've got to remember is just in 2012, right, just less than a decade ago when we had the Olympics in um and um, uh, in London, I remember how Lane was being sold as the this is our curry mile because they co- they were comparing it to the famous, you know, Manchester curry mile. Yeah. Saying, you know, this is our curry mile. This is where you need to go to have your latest curries. And um, and it's quite sad how, you know, the, the community was used in a way to basically promote these ideas around multiculturalism, around this idea that look at this great international city, you know, come to us, come and enjoy, enjoy yourself and enjoy a good old, you know, chicken tikka masala and whatever. Um, so I when we look at when the Olympics ended, that's when a lot of things started shifting because that's when we suddenly saw, you know, more and more restaurants closing because the demands for a uh, rent were high, rents were going up, um, um, and th- I feel like the appetite for the quote unquote Indian food has also changed. I think that's also something to keep in mind that a lot of um, young people in particular are becoming more and more familiar with the intricacies of um, Indian cuisine, if you want to say. Um, so that's why, you know, you will notice that a lot of street food style uh, South Asian food is becoming more and more prominent now. Um, so I think, uh, you know, uh, the curry house of disappearing, obviously, is something that Professor Claire Alexander touches upon in Beyond Bangladesh, And she gives statistics of how many were there around the Olympic period and then how many there are now. And from what I remember, it was just above 20 uh, right now, which is nothing compared to the larger numbers that existed prior uh, to th- this number. And I think the other thing, um, because is it a change in consumer demand to an extent? Yes, because the restaurants themselves, you know, would have to, you you can't cater to the old school, um, you know, uh, chicken tikka, that kind of sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, curry style of serving food anymore. Because, again, I feel like with big names like uh, Darjeeling, uh, um, Dishoom, what's the other one called, Chai Chad Chai, you know, these places have brought in the sort of uh, street food, South Asian street food. And I feel like that has also changed the dynamic. Um, one of the reasons I'm addressing this specifically is because when I interviewed for my uh, transnationalism and citizenship project, when we interviewed uh, Bangladeshis in, in uh, for example, uh, Birmingham, Luton and London, and, and particularly uncles who were restaurant owners, um, it was interesting because they would say that actually, we're trying to make sure we change up our menus regularly because we're recognising that people are becoming more and more, people aren't interested in the big sort of botch of curry with rice anymore. They, they want that uh, variation and, and whatnot. But... But um, the other thing I think, um, I mean, gentrification is, is uh, I mean, definitely a case here. Um, you know, the, the city, as, as uh, Hajira has mentioned, has, has been further incre- um, encroaching into uh, spitterfields, uh, which then meant, has meant, you know, um, rent uh, going up. It has meant that there's a different type of uh, customer base now for people, consumer base. And... And then, with this gentrification, has come, you know, again, as Hadira has mentioned, all these sort of really fancy, quaint, quirky cafes where you're paying something stupid like five pounds for a, for a cup of coffee um, because it's being sold as, you know, artisan coffee or whatever. Um, and again, we're talking about one of the poorest uh, sort of boroughs in the country um, where the vast majority of kids uh, tend to be in free school meals. Um, so I think it's important to remember when we look at that gentrification and who is being at the end product who is impacted by it and it is almost always the working class communities and in this particular case it's the Bangladeshi community um which then consequently does mean social and, and ethnic cleansing because we know that you know racialized minorities in britain don't have access to social mobility like their white counterpart which means that they will move out further and further to places like dance hill to uh, you know barking dagenham essex where they kind of to live um so yeah I, I hope I've been able to address your your question there
1: yeah you've both made some really really fantastic points and some things that I hadn't actually thought about myself previously one thing that really stood out to me was the focus on concepts like regeneration which is what was sort of packaged up and then offered to a lot of tourists who, as I think Hejero mentioned, attended the Olympics uh, in Stratford and that area subsequently house prices went up because prior to that it was, you know, one of the lowest um, in terms of prices for houses and affordable housing. It was one of the areas where you could still afford, whereas now it's crept up once again and perhaps it, there's more to it than just the Olympics and the wider quote-unquote regeneration. But I think what regeneration really equates to is complete and utter gentrification the demand is linked to how they want to be perceived they want to appeal to people who have moved into london for jobs who are not um you know residents of london um, from from birth onwards they're a lot of the time from other countries or from other parts of the of the UK who moved to London and they're trying to appeal to the sort of emerging new middle class generation uh, within our within our sort of age group of the younger you 20 to 30 age bracket uh, and that's something that's coming through a lot more uh, one thing that um, I am aware of is uh, South London how it used to be perceived as you know an area for example brixton um tooting those areas perceived as dangerous um or poor a lot of ethnic minorities and now it's been repackaged as of the place to live if you're you know a young person who's in a pretty well-paid job and can afford to live there but for most of the residents there they can't and that's why as you've made the point um, fatima that they people are now moving out to other parts
2: um to greater london other parts. Can I just um, add something to that about the whole like um how it used to be really dangerous and now it's <laughs> now it's trendy. <laughs> yeah, because the buildings are prettier. Um so yeah like I said I'm living in a new build in Bow and we have a neighbours WhatsApp group which I regret creating because I <laughs> I am now um, having to constantly listen to the complaints of people. Um, but anyway it, it frustrates me so much about many of these people who live here, who have not lived here before, um, so they're coming into Tower Hamlets and like the comments that they'll make about like essentially describing Tower Hamlets as dirty and unsafe but now this is their home so it's it's almost like they want to benefit from Tower Hamlets in the sense they want to benefit from how close we are to the city, they want to benefit from this trendy new flat that they have and all these new links but it's still kind of beneath them as well. And that really does irritate me, um, just how regularly these comments will be kind of like put in here, because you do get crime anywhere, right? Um, and mm. in a community like this, when actually I know that th- this community is over we're not under if anything. So like the comments about, um, going missing or like the comments about underpasses being dirty and things like that when actually you know it's a responsibility of the, the local council to keep places clean yeah um you know things like that it, the assumption that it's almost like the people who make it that way it really does come out I think in the little comments that they'll make um mm. so yeah
0: I always find that really frustrating and interesting can I just add to um that Tanya yeah of um so not just that, I mean, the, the language that you just mentioned, Hajira, in WhatsApp and like how a lot of words are used as proxies, which are basically, you know, racialized proxies, right? For like, these people are dirty, basically. These people don't know how to be clean. Um, and of course, you know, referring to Tooting and Brixton as dangerous, we know exactly which community is being referenced here, right? Yep. Because again, you're using all these racial, um, ra- heavily sort of racialized proxies to discuss these areas. And I remember many years ago um, around, I can't remember the, the exact Year, so I don't want to give a year. Um, but about maybe about five, six, or seven years ago. I remember um, the school on Valence Road uh, Osmani primary school um, what they tried to do because as you mentioned there are all these sort of uh, very hip middle class young people moving to these areas which then means they're settling there with their children The young children are now obviously going to have to attend the local schools and the local schools are still dominated by the you know the, the local community the local demographic which is you know Bangladeshi kids and on Valence Road what the, what they try to do, by convincing the head teacher was that we need to change the name of the school. Now um, for the listeners, Osmani is the name of the former um, army general who fought uh, in the British Army but then also fought in the Bangladesh Liberation war um, against uh, West Pakistan. So Osmani Center, Um, on Valence Road is is named after him and Osmani Primary School is also named after him. And the suggestion being put forward by this new, quote unquote, new community in the area was that we should have a name that is more uh, appealing uh, to newer communities Um, as if having Osmani isn't appealing because again, there's these sort of subtle proxies that are being used to suggest, well, it's it's basically for Bangladeshis when it's not. It's a state school, which was established through Bengali's literally struggling and fighting to establish educational institutions for their children because other schools were not taking them on. So, um, and I remember that fight... Bengalis had to really fight that put together a petition they had to get the governors involved they had to get the parents involved and they eventually had a vote um and and obviously governors are quite powerful and a lot of the governors didn't didn't see it necessary to change the school name and then you know to keep the name Osmani primary school basically they won the case and the head teacher couldn't change it but that's just a very subtle and and um Not not subtle, but I'd say that's quite an overt example of basically how a lot of these quote-unquote neo-communities are trying to um, change uh, the landscape of Tower Hamlets because suddenly it's too, basically, you know, foreign for them, too brown for them. Um, And obviously that plays out in the vocab that Hegira is exposed to on WhatsApp and then, you know, the struggle with the school name. So, so, you know, so these uh, conversations are had in such... um, you know, uh, deeply racialized tones and, um, and usually to demonize those communities.
1: Yeah, I think what's clearly emerging is this tendency to whitewash everything. There's clearly a very strong history within the Bangladeshi diaspora, within Tower Hamlets, but it feels as though the histories behind that is sort of being eradicated by replacing names, things like that, to make it more appealing to new communities who are now moving into these areas, which is really pretty you know it's just not a nice thing to reckon with when you actually realize this is what's happening Uh, Mm. and people don't realize that themselves people who are non bengali don't actually realize until you address it with them especially people within institutions who you know might not even think about questioning what the intention the wider intention is behind changing something like a school name Mm. and it's really important to be able to critique these things but I think at the end of the day it's only going to be our own community uh, which will stand up for Um, our representation our history our livelihoods and things like that and that's clearly what seems to be emerging from that um, experience from that story that you've shared with the school name Um, and I'm going to move on now to uh, Bangladeshi and the community within within Tower Hamlets and and other parts of the country as well. But to be honest, my experience is definitely within East London. I mean, I'm still, I I still live in East London now, but I don't, I no longer live in Tower Hamlets, but I've I've got a real sense of solidarity with um, East London um, and within the Bengali community. Um, For example, when I was a a child growing up, uh, I remember that my mum's family friends, uh, many of whom were Sileti, and we did things like venture out to see city, cities, the city, and and sites, and visit new museums, things which um, a lot of first generation women, I think, uh, many of whom were housewives, wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing alone or have you know a great deal of interaction outside of their own Bengali community. And the fact that women were able to sort of uh, get together and go out and venture out um, was something that I witnessed, and I thought that was a really nice thing to be able to do. Um, so in many ways, I think. Bangla town has been a refuge uh, a place of solace for Bengali women. Uh, I also remember that my mum was part of many community initiatives, whether it was uh, with the local community centers filling out forms for um, women who might have needed a bit of help. Or working with uh, my primary school to bring the Bengali culture and language to the curriculum because I think over 50% even more than that I'd say about 80% of the people I went to primary school with were Bengali so I wanted to talk a bit more about the potential impacts of gentrification on first generation Bangladeshi women in East London do you think it will have the same sort of effects uh, on second generation Bangladeshi women? So um, I imagine you're both uh, second generation, but correct me if I'm if I'm wrong.
0: No, you're correct for me. <laughs> well, in my case, I'm, I'm third generation. My granddad came first. Oh, wow. That's interesting.
1: So, I mean, it will be great
0: to hear your thoughts on
2: that. Yeah, I mean, my mum ex- did a lot of these um, activities in the same way that you described, um, and I think it, some of her closest friends now are from these kind of activities, um, mostly through ISO, I believe, like for English or second language classes that she attended. Um, it's interesting because my mum, <laughs> I don't know, like when we were growing up, uh, my dad used to work in a restaurant and he'd, and he'd spend I think amount of time living there because there wasn't that many, from what I know, there wasn't that many, um, it paid better to kind of go outside and stay there for a few days and then come back on the day off. So she basically had two kids on her own, bringing them up. She did all the doctor's appointments, everything all on home with very, very little English. And she actually managed that fine. I think like she got us all registered to school, did all the parents meeting, everything. Um, But then I think as we got older and by older I mean literally primary school and we would take over the translation work and all of that stuff I think she stopped having to use her English um and that really probably did impact um how confident she is in English because she still does understand very well what people are saying but it's her speaking I think she's quite shy and because she hasn't for many years the period where she didn't practice it Um, it kind of it was not as strong as it could have been um, but then these kind of classes, like the ESOL classes and things that she started to go on really did help with that. Um, yeah, they used to go on like museum trips and things like that. Um, what I think with the gentrification, I'm not sure, I haven't seen myself a reduction in these kind of activities because I know my mom and her friends still, I mean, COVID aside, I still have the opportunity to go to these things. I know there's a lot of um, initiatives going on around like, particularly Bengali women um, in the area. Mulberry um, School, for example, has used to have, I mean, my sisters, none of us are still at school, but when we were at school, they used to have um, classes like yoga classes and stuff for the moms. that my mom used to go to our local swimming pool used to have a woman's only swimming day, which I know used to be full of like Bengali moms going, uh, which is amazing. But I think more than gentrification, um, one thing that I've noticed, where the funding for a lot of these things are coming from, where previously they seem to be coming from, an idea of like helping these women um, kind of learn skills, um, and there was like a big interest in that. Now there seems to be an interest kind of like the Stavia complex of like trying to bring these women out, get them out of the home, um, and I think um, but don't quote me because I haven't looked into this very recently, but I remember when I looked at it a while ago, a lot of the funding was prevent funding as well. And I remember when I was at university, there was also that quote from, um, what was it, David Cameron, who was basically, I can't remember exactly what he said, but essentially was saying, like throwing all these women who couldn't speak English under the bus as if they were somehow to blame um, for issues of extremism or whatnot, I can't remember that quote. Um, So yeah, I feel like now the intention is, different to what it used to be, it doesn't feel as pure or as, as like a way of just, you know, community activities as, in a, and in a similar vein, like, you know, used to have a lot of youth active, of centres and things like that, unfortunately, most of them are just closed, like I haven't even seen replacement for them, prevent funding or otherwise, um, mainly because I think the community as a whole has rejected prevent funding. Um, initiatives, mostly, I mean, I know not everyone has. So yeah, like youth stuff has just been completely gone away, all of our local youth centres are closed down now. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I have completely answered your question, um, in terms of what impact that will have, like gentrification has on um, first generation women, because I feel like the activities themselves are happening. And I think, from what I can see, impact isn't coming from gentrification it's kind of coming from a higher level um yeah that's just been my experience of it
1: yeah that's that's really uh interesting um yeah there's obviously a wider question around who a lot who this these sorts of initiatives like funded by prevent actually really benefit and what they're actually trying to achieve from it whether they're trying to essentially whitewash eradicate uh, Asian, South Asian cultures, because there's clearly a misconception about uh, religion, Islam, and and conflating that with culture. And the truth of the matter is, I think people are just not very, in the government, for example, people aren't very well aware about how communities function. And there's clearly an illiteracy there, because it's amazing how we have such a large, a substantial uh Bangladeshi population in this country, but it seems that people in, in the high level, um, you know, in high level government don't really understand how we operate, how we work. And just shoving a bit of money under the guise of prevent or we're trying to integrate is essentially about whitewashing the wider culture. And that's not a very nice thing to see. Um, and I wanna move on now to uh, an example of something that I saw recently, um, Uh, community cafe which was created by a group of Bangladeshi women which celebrates bengali cuisine arts and culture and it's a great example of you know being able to marry home comforts with entrepreneurship and financial independence because traditionally we've seen a lot of men uh operate the curry houses uh and there's Equally with that rising demand, I think, with uh, what you mentioned, Fatima, earlier about people wanting variety with cuisine, with South Asian home comforts, with curries, and it's not just about the traditional or the, you know, the standard, the bog standard tikka masala that you get. It's more about variation and experimenting with different flavors, and maybe it's an indication of palates, uh, taste buds changing as well. Um, And do you think that this sort of trajectory will continue despite the continued challenges of the pandemic? and the growing push for gentrification in east london. Yep. To be honest, I think a lot of the I think this question was actually answered in the last <laughs> in the last question. So maybe it's more of a commentary
0: um, I mean i I'd be happy to just just um, add some stuff to this because um I think initiatives like that are great um but um just to go back to your previous question about you know uh, Bengali women and the, and the struggles and and gentrifications impact on those women and I think it's important to remember that a lot of these women made their communities in these areas with women from their generation so when gentrification impacts these families they have no choice but to leave that area which means that women become more and more isolated isolated because then it means their social circle their their friends you know their girlfriends who are their you know their lifeline beyond their sort of whatever everyday other tasks they have you know uh, are the, it just sort of reduces their their social circle so i think we're talking about you know this isolation that a lot of bangladeshi women experience when they first migrated and suddenly they found themselves in these like tiny little flats in london you know uh, they're coming from the buddy in bangladesh where everything is so open and spacious and coming to these like like small flats where you know they're just literally locked in with these four you know within these four walls and then you know and the impact of gentrification means that isolation then re-emerges because it means that their social circle is being broken apart because not everyone can afford to remain in the area so i think it's it's beyond just the economics of it all but also how it impacts people you know and again i don't have any expertise on mental health but i can only imagine how much that then adds to um, these women's mental health and, um, and, and the isolation that, that, that mu- and how that must amplify how they then feel. So as much as these initiatives are great that are being introduced and this sort of cuisine and everything, um, I think we've got to remember when these things are brought forward, you, we can't, you know, separate them from you know, the economic you know material access these women don't have or do have. So I think it's, it's important to have these conversations about these community cafes opening up. Um, and how they are accommodating for these women's needs. Are they then doing, you know, do they have a social enterprise set up to then support these women? And, you know, are these women then able to retain and stay within the community? So for me, it's more about, more than just the fluffiness of it all, of, you know, offering people the different fitas that we eat, for example, the different bhajis or whatever, um, which is nice and all very Kumbaya-esque. But I think we need to have, you know, look at this uh, beyond that framing that, you know, what are these women, you know, getting materially is it benefiting their families are they financially you know then able to sustain themselves are they able to retain their position in tar Hamlet? so it's important I think to have these sort of food conversations and whatever in relation to the economic socio-economic positionings of, of, of Bangladeshi women.
2: That reminded me of a story that Fatima once told me about um, a woman who wanted to sell khetaz and I'm not going to ask her to kind of repeat that story here but um, I-, I guess what what like initiatives like this when i hear about them it's great and it's lovely and it it's the kind of thing that makes you feel warm but then i worry about how sustainable these things are like and what harm they're also doing like if you are having to survive by selling things that are yours to a different community because now it's fashionable now it's trendy what happens when it stops being trendy and what happens when they figure out they can make it themselves and sell it for 10 times more, you know, that, that kind of stuff um, comes to mind. And the reason why, and then I worry about these things because my mum, for example, um, she's genuinely terrified that she'll get kicked out of the flat that she's living in. Many of her friends have been kicked out when their kids have grown up and they've moved on. So they can't afford the bedroom taxes and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. And she even, my mum even thought about what if now, um, while my brother's still unmarried, she moves to somewhere where he can drive her back and forth here, like to my brother and whatnot, so that we can buy the house, rent it out to someone else until she can afford then when he's married, she's already thinking like years ahead, when he's married, he might not have time to drive her around. Um, She can then move back and she will have her mother right downstairs. She will have her friends, you know? Um, And that stuff kind of breaks my heart because that's the reality, I think, of the people who are living here, um, experiencing it. And like these initiatives, although they're lovely, don't, I don't think we'll be able to tackle that. Like how you tackle that is like real social housing, real um, like dealing with the crux of it. Like why are these communities allowed to be priced out? Like that shouldn't ever be a thing. And it is, unfortunately. Yeah
1: that's a really important point that you made when you think about the fact that Bangladeshis have essentially called East London their home for so many years it can feel like a part of your identity is essentially being taken away from you can't it so it's something that we should definitely
2: be questioning.
1: I think Um, more than the
2: identity thing though and like the dilution of Like, I don't think the issue is there's people from different communities necessarily coming in because then that's sharing a culture and an opportunity for friendship. I think it's a community coming in and then trying to benefit from what they have. Like, it's trendy to be in Brick Lane. It's trendy to go to a curry house. Mm. Um, But it's trendy up until, like, it's trendy only to a certain point. But actually, they don't want to deal with the issues that the community faces. Um, th- there's no money being pumped into that. The money is going to making it look pretty. Um, and what that then results in is the outpricing of the community. So it's not even that the identity has been taken away, their whole livelihood essentially is being taken away. Um, and I think that's where the distinction is. Um, mm. Because like I remember like in school as um, when I was in school, in the first couple of years, there was a lot more um, Bengali students in the school. But as time went on, there was, the Somali community were moving in. So there's more Somali um, people coming in. And then even my brother, his class wasn't, by the time I had finished school, his class wasn't so predominantly um, Bengali. There were Somali um, boys there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like his friends, when he'd be like playing outside, it was no longer just Bengali boys. It was like Somali boys and Bengali boys. That wasn't, a dilution in the sense that was like a community equally working class community
0: Mm.
2: coming in and like making the place their home Mm. and I think where it becomes a problem is when it's a different class of people coming in um and you mean predominantly middle
1: classes who drive up the the house prices and the cost of living exactly exactly
2: and they and they kind of want to they don't want to make it their home because it's not it's not right yet so they want to change everything and then make it their home like it's Mm. not okay how it is yeah yeah I completely
1: see that um you mentioned Shadwell as well which is somewhere I went quite a lot as a kid because we had family friends there but I went in my 20s I'm still in my 20s but I went a couple of years ago because one of my um one of my work colleagues ended up moving there and she was paying like a ridiculous amount of money I think it was like 1200 pounds a month for a tiny room yeah. in a shared house and I was just thinking like opposite her there were people who were, you know ha- having as a result of that having their own cost of living driven up um and the fact that you see so many contrasting ways of life, like complete polar opposites, and you can be on the same street, you can be in the, completely in the same vicinity. If you look out your window, you'll see someone who's significantly economically more disadvantaged than you are or vice versa. Um, and that's something that I don't really think I've seen in other parts, um, in, other, in other cities that, that I've been to. Um, and I think that's something that really does make London unique. Uh, in many ways, um, I'm really conscious that we're being really London centric and maybe very East London centric. So
0: hopefully, we'll talk about other parts as well. Um, uh, can I just add something to that Tanya yes, um, yeah. about that? So, so I think it's important to remember that obviously the city is very close to uh, the Allgate area right? Uh, a yeah. Spitalfields and Banglatown ward and then on the other end we have Canary Wharf which is literally the financial district of of, of the United Kingdom. So yeah. I think we've got to remember where Bangladeshis are located spatially and what that means. So you know The Guardian did a phenomenal piece a few years ago where they found that some of the sort of you know working class communities in town rely on local food Food banks, which are literally a stone throw away from like Merrill Lynch, from Bank of America, you know, people who are yeah. earning six digits, you know, just down yes. the road, while yeah. there are people who are um, accessing the food bank. So I think when we're making these contrasts, I think it's important to remember just how you know violent uh, you know capitalism is and who it benefits and who it doesn't. Mm. And in this case, you know, Tarhamsis is is the perfect example uh, to look at the broader um, you know the, the, you know as 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 a sort of example to look at how it functions in other places so for me tower hamlets pretty much can be transported to other places and we can discuss other cities in the same way because what what is happening in in tower hamlets which is just quite it's deeply sad and deeply upsetting because you know we're literally you know tearing communities apart who and it's not just a case of um again, uh, Hegera has, you know, very eloquently discussed this, that it's not about different cultures coming in, it's about people who settle there, make the area their home, make it, you know, where they know their neighbours, you know, there are people they've grown up with, there's an auntie down the road, there's a grandmother down the road or whatever, so I think it's about all these familial connections and friendships and, you know, and, and and, and you know, love for one another and sincerity and, you know, developing things together and babysitting one another's children and, um, and all these things, these social social um, bonds are being taken away and 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 we're social you know animals we need to be around uh, familiarity people we know people we can trust you know and and when that's being when that's eroding right in front of your eyes of course you know the consequences would be dire yeah
1: yeah definitely um, and someone who s- saw it through um, in my childhood being in Tower Hamlets and now as an adult there's you know it's, it's completely different as a kid you see it through you know completely unadulterated a completely unadulterated lens whereas now as an adult the reality of gentrification is you know really comes to the fore um but also sort of makes me feel a bit in denial about it um I know that for example that the old Truman Brewery is about to place a, a, a massive shopping complex right in the middle and not only will that make it more, even more unaffordable than it already is for residents and businesses by driving costs up, but it will also you know, upend the Bangladeshi community, which is already, as you said, eroding. Um, and that's what makes the area's historic landscape and cultural bedrock. And several examples have already been shared about how that cultural bedrock is being eroded through things like name-changing, Um, the decision to you know replace certain curry houses with cafes which sell ridiculously ridiculously priced coffees Um, so I think Brick Lane is both a symbol of struggle and success for Bangladeshis from the renowned Altabali to the infamous curry houses and everything in between but I'm always also reminded about Um, you know, by my parents, my aunts, my uncles, a lot of senior members in my family, that London isn't what it used to be through, you know, based on what they saw when they first came here. So do you think that this type of social cleansing is characteristic of what's to come in the future? Do you think it's an inevitability? Um, And as I've already made the point, you have not seen anywhere around the world, which is as gentrified and polarized in terms of economic privilege like London. And as you said, you know, it's a financial capital. So obviously you're going to see that, but by way of example like where i live i've got delivery drivers who live below me i've got i know an, a couple of investment bankers who live just down the road and it's just it's just insane to know that you know the two different lifestyles are going to be completely
0: different um so hejira do you mind if i if i <laughs> okay. go first here? Yeah, yeah okay um so i think one of the first things i want to say is that um uh, with regards to the point about this kind of gentrification not happening elsewhere, um, actually, it is happening across Europe, uh, and I can give quite concrete examples. So Berlin, for example, has suddenly become a hub for a lot of Europeans, um, particularly from the English-speaking world, arriving in, uh, in um, Berlin sorry, and upping a lot of the rent prices. And if you look at, if you do a quick Google search, you will find that actually Berliners we're not going to stand for it. They fought uh, back against uh, the local council and councillors and said that no, yes, these people are coming in, but you're not going to raise our rents. You're not going to push us out. We've been a part and parcel of Berlin's landscape for decades. You know, um, so if you look at, for example, you know, usually when people go to Berlin, um, one of the areas that people go to travel to, you know, uh, in, within uh, an area is known as um, Kreuzberg and Kreuzberg has one of the largest sort of uh, Turkish communities. You could say it's like the Brooklyn equivalent of, of the Turkish community in um, Berlin. And that, that community, you know, galvanized people in Berlin and said, hell no, we're not going to have this happen to our city because, because they know this is happening in other cities across the globe. Um, this is happening across New York. You hear about people, you know, who've lived in places like Harlem, close to Manhattan, you know, Brooklyn, who are then having to move further out of New York. Um, and And we see that, for example, with the Bangladeshis organising in the Bronx about how a lot of Bangladeshis can no longer afford to live in the Bronx, which used to be the more affordable uh, um, uh, area, I guess, and now are being pushed out because of the fact that so many hipsters are are entering uh, that area. Another example I can give is of Denmark. Uh, So Dr. Amani Hassani does a lot of work on Denmark. And actually right now, what um, the Danish government is doing in the sort of this process of trying to cleanse the city of... um, Copenhagen is uh, actually they 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 um, they're putting stats on how many Muslims there can be in areas of making sure there's sort of division, if you want to say, of demographics. So I think it's important to to actually look at these cities and how they are fighting against gentrification in their area. So Berlin is, I think, the strongest example. And of course, you know, um, I'm sure this is happening in Paris. I personally don't know of examples, but I'm sure this is happening because, again, you know, it's it's, it's a capital city. Uh, There are other cities in in Europe that it must be happening in as well because of the way... Um, you know, uh, developments and uh, and the way international actors are able to access land and spaces within cities and then basically, you know, uh, capitalise off of that. Um, And and it's capitalised off of that in in a way that is really insidious. So a friend of mine in North London lives in a new development. And I don't know if this is the case with you as well, Hajira, but my friend when she moved into her place I kid you not in her manual instructions of her uh, uh, sort of new de- development flat she was told explicitly she's not allowed to put for example her washing out on the balcony because it will disrupt the aesthetics of the area um, because they're trying to appeal to a particular class of people and apparently you're not supposed to put your underwear out in, on your balcony because apparently that's less appealing so I think when we talk so where about are you supposed this- to dry your clothes then well, I mean, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no, indoors. No. But I think, I think the, the point here is of how, how insidiously this sort of aesthetic is managed by these developers and who is allowed to be, you know, basically, uh, you know, seen and not seen and who is allowed to be, um, you know, not have the aesthetics disturbed, um, you know, and which is, again, what Hajeeva spoke about initially, about how, you know, the, the, the local residents in her, and her um, area flat uh, block Mm -hmm. people, you know, speaking about, you know, this being dirty, the underpasses this, you know, it's because the aesthetic of us Mm -hmm. existing in those spaces is in itself uh, a sort of um, something that's unwanted, it's undesirable. Um, So yeah, so that's one thing that I wanted to address with regards to how it plays out in other cities in the the world uh, where you will see this this binary uh, example you've given of the investment bankers alongside delivery drivers, which is uh, the case with other cities. Not so much in the in the Berlin context because Germany's financial capital is in Frankfurt, so obviously that dynamic is slightly different uh, in in Berlin. Um, The other question you sort of asked was, do you think this type of social cleansing is characteristic of what's to come? I think what we've got to remember is, I feel like with that particular part of Taha Hamlet, Splitterfields and Banglatown, you know, one of our other comrades from Nijamanush Sotis in a podcast said, you know, actually we're in a post-gentrification period now. And what he meant by that was that because they've already gentrified the area, because if we look at Shoreditch and Hoxton, um, people wouldn't dare walk into these areas in the 90s because they were scared of the gangs because there were sort of... um, Bengali gangs, boys from different estates, you know, the postcode gangs and whatever. People wouldn't dare come to those areas. And now you have all these really flashy Vietnamese, Korean uh, restaurants popping up, left, right, center, you know, and people are there, you know, with all these funky bars and pubs with dress codes. You you have to look a particular way. Um, so this gentrification has already happened. But what we're now seeing is this sort of like it, it's, it's a more of a violent drive now to push you out. Like, look, we've come here. We don't want you here so we're going to push you out and I think that's the point that I guess I'd, I'd like the listeners to take away of what is happening is that you're unwanted in those areas you're not desirable and you don't fit the aesthetics because of who you are uh, how you are located racially and class wise
1: yeah some really really important and uh, yes, yeah, significant points that you've raised there um In terms of comparing with other cities, yeah, I I wasn't trying to say that London was unique in that sense, um, but I think I've not seen it in in the same way in other cities. But yeah, I completely uh, resonate with the fact that cities like Berlin, um, like Copenhagen, a lot of this is is causing resistance and that's something that we might not necessarily be seeing in London because as you've said we're now in a post-gentrification state where the damage is already done um and it's interesting that you mentioned that podcast I was actually listening to it just before we started recording I haven't finished
0: listening to it yet but um yeah it was a really interesting conversation I I do want to say there is fight back uh, in across different parts of London um so you have the London Renters Union uh you've got local um what are they called Hajira uh these um housing association groups, what are they called um, for like estates and blocks? Residents. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, so so a lot of people are actually fighting back. It's just that sometimes we don't hear about them. You mm. know, these fights are happening across Hackney, yeah. Dalston. Yeah. They're happening in Stoke Newington. They're happening in Tower Hamlets. You know, um, obviously right now within this particular conversation, because obviously the Save Brook Lane campaign is is something oh, Nigel Manish has been, you know, a part of. But um, I do want to say that, that there are there are people fighting on the ground. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, it always has been as well, like, even before, like, you know, you had like the Bengali squatter movement and things like that, that was also to do with housing at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. not adequate housing and not, um, not enough, not clean housing, you know, so they fought back in those times as well. And I think we've inherited elements of that and we are continuing to
1: fight I think I didn't know about a lot of this stuff because I've been away from London for so many years and then come back and I've already seen it it's already gentrified and in fact I've you know I'm, I'm going to be having to admit here that I'm probably a, a byproduct of gentrification I've moved here because there are jobs here there are opportunities here that there might not have been 10 20 years ago and that's what mm-hmm. that what that is ultimately what has caused gentrification it's this influx of jobs being the financial capital the fact that w- that london as a city is so appealing it's got worldwide appeal so people from all over the world are coming here and that's inevitably going to drive up prices the cost of living one thing that's i suppose interesting is the fact that i'm able to sort of dissect um two parts of my identity the identity that I had when I was living in East London as a child and, and the one that I have now uh and there's so much difference so much change in what's happened in in a matter of decades um and the idea of you know the, the fact that people are resisting I think the pandemic has certainly questioned a lot of landlords uh private renters who Prior to the pandemic, we're paying an extortionate amount anyway for rent, but I think that's also calling into question whether it's justifiable if people are now moving out. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing that people, a lot of people who weren't, you know, who were native to London, who did, weren't born here, didn't grow up here, who came here, moved here only a few years ago may decide because of this pandemic, oh, I don't need to live here anymore. Uh, and maybe house prices will uh, stabilise, but there's no way we can sort of rely on that and bet on that and think, oh, that's going to happen. Because ultimately, over the next decade, cost of living, no doubt, is going to keep creeping up. Um, and the question of economics and inequality is always going to be to, re- to remain. I think that's the case all around the world in a lot of cities, especially cities which are really fast growing. Um, I want to talk a bit more about... Um, the South Asian community and the, you know, our place as Bangladeshis, as, as Bengalis within that, south, that wider South Asian community, because I don't think that's very widely spoken about. Uh, the 2011 census revealed that there were um, just over 450, f- f- I think 450,000 Bangladeshis in the UK, 95% of whom identified as Sileti. Uh, as someone who is from the city of Dhaka, which isn't technically... True, as I'm not from Taka, but that's the sort of default term that I use to describe myself and others who want, who are British and Bengali, but not from Silet. Um, so as a, as a non-Sileti, I am a minority within a minority, essentially. I wanted to ask you how well you think that other South Asian cultures integrate with each other in the UK and whether you think there's a sense of solidarity, for example, between the Sileti and Taka communities uh, and, and then also the wider South Asian diaspora, so Pakistani, Indian, Sri Lankan communities, for example.
2: I think it's a very interesting question that you ask because when we talk about solidarity... Um, I guess it. it can, I, I was then thinking solidarity to what? Like in what sense? Um, so, for example, when we've had um, cases of like general campaigns going on that impact one community, there have been cases of other communities coming in and like being involved in that. Um, I'm thinking of like E.D.L. marches and things like that. Um, it wasn't just the Bengali community; there was a, there was a sense of solidarity from different communities, but I think it's important to remember that solidarity and community is kind of built it just doesn't happen like you're brown and i'm brown and therefore we have some kind of solidarity together like i don't think that's necessarily the case um and i think work has to go in to building those solidarity and building those groups um and you have many um campaigning groups and organizations and like grassroots campaigns who put in that work to build those Links and solidarity between communities. So, um, if I might just mention the London Renters Union, for example, the London Renters um, Union, I'm thinking to Hamlet's one because that's just one that I'm part of, has people in it from all different backgrounds. And the thing that they have, like, that unifies them and the thing that they come together for is the fact that they've all been, they've had issues with their landlords, you know, and that in in that space there is that solidarity. so, yeah, I think there it's easy to build solidarity when you've got something in mind, um, and that, but it takes work. I don't think it's just something that automatically will happen because you your parents came from the same continent.
1: Yeah, I think just because you're brown and someone else is brown doesn't mean yeah. that you have to get along. So, no. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a wider conversation at play about communities building that relationship and building that trust in effect as well because yeah. let's not forget that, we had, we had a war and we separated firstly from India and then from West Pakistan. So, so maybe there are some tensions running there, but I know that growing yeah. up, um, you know, within, my, within um, senior members of my family, so my parents, my aunts and uncles, there was a lot of sort of, um, I think just a bit of animosity uh, about the war and what happened because we know that a lot of Bangladeshi women... Um, suffered as a result of the war Um, and so the sort of rhetoric around other South Asian communities was sort of very much an us versus them Hmm. sort of narrative that's that's the sort of vibe I got but obviously my generation our generation is, is a bit different because you don't tend to Um, focus on that previous narrative but obviously we we are we are very conscious and aware of it but it doesn't sort of consume us in the way I think a lot of for our parents for our aunts and uncles that that it does because for example like my aunts and uncles my mom like she they had to witness they had to hide for nine months (laughs) underground during the Mm. war so and um, for example like my granddad he actually was captured by the the uh, Pakistani army um and yeah he was he'd gone for nine months everyone thought he died but he came back so he he was part of the um he was part of the freedom fighters and so i think they they had some sort of view that he was an informant or a spy or something so yeah i mean and the fact that my grandma had to go through all of that not realizing what had happened um yes there's a lot of sort of trauma hidden there um But yeah, maybe that's what sort of creates an us-versus-them culture for that generation, but maybe for us it's it's a bit different. But I don't know if you
0: guys have any other thoughts on that. No, I was just going to say, um, I mean... I mean, I, I have to um, agree with Hajira that, you know, solidarity doesn't just emerge. Um, uh, you know, it has to be something that you have to work at. Um, so definitely, you know, all my skin folk aren't my, you know, kin folk, as they say. So I think um, with regards to tensions, I think it's 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 it goes without saying that, you know, from the Indian subcontinent, there, there were historical um, tensions between different communities um, and there's no doubt that some of those would play out in the contemporary political sort of um, formations that are taking place in the subcontinent with uh, a prime minister like Modi and what's happening in, in Kashmir um, and currently with the farmers protest which is uh, with, with much of its focus on uh, you know um, Sikh uh, Punjabi farmers so I think there's no denying that you know what happens in the subcontinent has an impact on relations here but um But the idea that somehow they need to be integrated or are integrated I, I'm, I'm personally not a fan of this word of integrate and integration because it's it has a lot of um political uh, and racial connotations implying that you know uh there's a set way of being uh, and which is usually in um juxtaposition with a dominant society and dominant group in this case uh the white community so I think um I'm personally not a fan of of that word and, and I don't I generally also avoid using it but um is there a sort of sense of sort I mean, politically in the spaces I've entered, yes, I have met other South Asians who um, politically position themselves as, um, you know, uh, recognising struggles are connected, recognising that liberations are linked, uh, recognising that we, we, we've we got to stand with each other, for each other, by each other. Um, we've seen that historically. So when, for example, after Atabali's death, the Battle of Brick Lane, we saw, you know, um, you know uh, uncles from Southall, uh, you know, who turned up, you know, Punjabi Sikh uncles who turned up to show the solidarity with Bengalis. There were, you know, people from the Black community, people from the Irish community, the Jewish community, uh, people from, you know, up north, people from Birmingham, Leeds, uh, Bradford were filling up coaches to come and, you know, show the solidarity who were, you know, Indian or Pakistani. So I think, you know, historically, we we can see this in our history books that this was there. Um, This needs to be cultivated and recultivated with every generation. We can't just assume things are there just because you and I look alike or we share the same faith even. Um, I think, you know, these things have to be cultivated and continuously recultivated with each generation, Um, whether it's sort of intra-community issues between the whole like cillity, non-cillity. I personally have never come across this. um, so I, I'm not familiar with that dynamic. Um, but beyond that sort of other uh, community issues that may arise, I think the, it's just a case of us working through them without having to ever um, work with each other, integrate with each other in a sense of how the government would want it to work. Um, I don't think we should take any, any uh, tips from the government on how we should manage one another and be with one another
1: yeah i completely agree with you especially the point about you know there is no integration because i think what i associate with that word is homogenization we've all got to be generalists we've all got to sort of mix and mingle our cultures and form a wider more dominant culture as you said and that's not something we want because we want to preserve our own cultures the fact that you know within the south asian continent there are so many diverse different varied cultures different religions different faiths different communities different ways of life and we are you know we want to preserve that the fact that we've moved migrated to other countries you know there's there's clearly a tension there about diluting our culture and it certainly doesn't help if you want to integrate quote-unquote integrate just because we are brown um and I think that's basically the take take home of that
0: question uh and I think we all all sort of agree that that's a true can I just say um sorry just just another point is that I'm not sure it's about diluting though because You know, um, because this this again, this is within the literature of sort of looking at how people, when they move around globally uh, and historically, whenever you move to a place, it's inevitable that you become acculturated and socialized into that society. So, if I, for example, tomorrow move to, for argument's sake, if I move to, let's say, you know, South Africa, you know, I am going to become acculturated and socialized into that particular social way of doing things and being, you know, and exploring. So, for me, it's not necessarily a dilution but merely how societies function so um, you know the fact that so many cultures are within their homes able to you know and this is the word you you used is preserve their culture uh, which is which is being done so I'm not I'm not entirely convinced it's being diluted per se it's just a case of that um, different people embrace their cultural heritage in different ways and and again it doesn't have to be done in a in a a very in a homogenous way
1: yeah no no it doesn't absolutely not um
2: yeah, Can you I add said something you... to yeah, this sure. question as well before we move on? Because we like, Yo, you're getting ready to move on. Um, I just wanted to pick up on like the point, because you talked about the trauma of your family, and I feel like we kind of moved on quite quickly from that. And given it's like the 50th anniversary of the Liberation War, um, I just wanted to kind of like make the point as well. Like when I was growing up, I used to see my mum primarily because she was... The person I will talk to about this like the mistrust I'd, I'd use that kind of language that she had within the of the Pakistani community because so I had like Pakistani friend I didn't understand it and I think it came from a place of arrogance um on my part because I used to think oh it's like a type of like my mom thinks she's better like Bengalis are better than Pakistanis or something like that and that's how I used to justify in my head not taking the time or bothering to look into or knowing like I didn't know the like history of it and like but now like knowing the trauma behind everything of course like if you have literally I mean like you talked about your granddad being uh, abducted for nine months of course you're gonna have a mistrust within a community it doesn't just go away like that um it takes time it takes healing and our parents our grandparents weren't given that time to heal um there was no therapy for them there was no um community healing like they've been carrying this trauma around with them. Um, Often not even speaking to anyone about it unless they're asked, you know? Um, So yeah, I think there are definitely tensions that are based from things that have happened years ago, things that are happening now, but I don't think that necessarily then translates to if there was something happening here that then the community wouldn't organize around it. Like I think um, I've seen myself like when things have happened we have been able to galvanize uh, support and solidarity from different communities. Um, but yeah I mean on the day-to-day I guess more there are like personal thoughts and things that people carry with them but I think that's just the reality of being humans like any every community has their own um, experiences that they've gone through their own histories that they've gone through and naturally their thoughts and other people are um, based on that that's just how you you know how we think how we make our opinions on things Um, and unless something happens to change that it's just not going to change
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And similar to you, I had the the same types of conversations with my parents about mistrusting Pakistanis, because I remember having um, a couple of Pakistani friends at university, and I actually confronted them about this, not in an antagonistic way, but I just said, you know, what's the sort of narrative around your perception of Bangladeshis, um, based on your conversations that you have with your parents, and their view is exactly what we had Oh. Pakistanis as Pakistanis we think we're superior to you um we think we're better than you that's the narrative and similar to what your mum said Hajira about having that sort of undertone of oh we're better than you culturally you know however whatever ways we are we're superior that sort of that sort of attitude um but as you've said, that's a lot of the time it's sort of inherent in hu- in human nature, and a lot of the experiences that we have sort of tie in with our wider sort of perception of different cultures, um, and the fact that we can be very prejudiced against different cultures. But you know, going through another generation. That, that sort of mistrust has now, is not part of the conversation. I don't mistrust my Pakistani friends based on a war that happened that didn't really involve me. But obviously there's a there's a wider conversation to be had amongst, you know, between ourselves, between our parents, between our grandparents about what actually happened. But as you said, they don't really like to talk about it very much. It was only occasionally that I could squeeze out like a couple of anecdotes from my, from my granddad. Um, but he didn't, he was quite reluctant to talk about stuff like that because obviously there's a lot of trauma. And as you said, there there isn't really therapy or I, I don't think they had any sort of um service available to them after it happened so a lot of the time you just you just didn't really say much you'd rather sort of forget about it um but yeah really interesting conversations around different cultures south asian cultures uh, and that sense of solidarity but um i think fatima you mentioned um just earlier about acculturation and the fact that you don't agree with uh, dilution the fact that we're diluting um i think when you move to another country you have to adapt and a lot of the time when you adapt um you don't necessarily forget your own culture but you might end up um sort of not negating it but sort of mixing it with another culture and then you end up sort of i don't know sort of sacrificing some elements just so you can sort of feel like you fit in um that's something that i've noticed um, with my own family but i think everyone's experience can be quite individual in that sense um and i think our our parents generation was probably had to sacrifice a lot more than we have because whenever I have conversations with um older members of my family they just say you know we don't think that you're necessary Bangladeshi because you were born here so there's a bit of like pride because they actually lived in Bangladesh and now they've moved to the UK so they feel like they're migrants in the sense of that narrative whereas we're just British so I don't know if you have similar conversations with your family but um yeah that's the sort of rhetoric that I get um And finally, I wanted to talk a bit more about um, the the portrayal of Bangladeshi and particularly Muslim hijabi women in the media, which can be quite incendiary and damaging. Um, They're simultaneously portrayed as being threatening, but also oppressed at the same time. So... I think the recent Woman's Hour interview uh, with the newly elected Secretary-General of the Muslim Council of Britain, um, which you know went viral on Twitter just because of the way in which the questioning um, was quite antagonistic. I think it goes to show the way in which white feminism infantilises Muslim women and undermines their integrity. And I just wanted to ask very quickly before we wrap up, whether you think that narrative will ever evolve?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember watching that interview and it was very frustrating to watch. Um, and I think anyone who's... Um, A brown woman uh, who's had to be like publicly doing any kind of talks and stuff. Um, But particularly if you're like Muslim and then hijabi as well, it's like a triple threat, as they say. Um, I think we have to be strong in what we believe, and not necessarily because I think there's there's sometimes like this belief that if you just have more brown faces in the media, then things will just become better and it will be okay. But actually the brown people that we have in the media um, are not necessarily saying the things that we would say. um, And also they're not um, treated the same as their white peers are treated. Um, For example, I can't remember her name, is it? um, Naga who um, was like, she liked a tweet and then she had to write an apology whereas all her colleagues can, like, say, well, whatever they want on Twitter, and it's fine. Um, But, yeah, it's, like, so I think so long as we, as a community and within our own groups, like, we focus in on what we think of ourselves and what we need from each other, and then we kind of work towards that, like, I've stopped, I've tried to stop caring about what, the Muslim woman image is because it's almost so disheartening Um, and now I'm focusing on like what do I need to be saying for the people that I'm working with and organizing with um, and like my community what do they need to be said kind of thing. Um, I don't think that necessarily resolves the problem because obviously it's not as simple as and it's not as basic as someone being attacked or misconstrued in the media because what that then leads to is someone's mum's niqab being pulled off or being spat out in the street you know that's indirectly what it equates to um but I don't necessarily think we can just um I don't think there's an easy way out of it I don't think we can like buy ourselves into um the majority or like the pleasing of the majority I just I think it's too naive to think that's the case um and the way to deal with that is like okay we won't ever win in that sphere so let's concentrate on what we need and like give each other the support that we need here's the way I'm kind of dealing with it at the moment.
0: Fatima did you have anything else to add to that? Um, So just to sort of reiterate the question, sorry, you said, um, if we think uh, this narrative will ever evolve of the Muslim woman in in the hijab and the, I guess the stereotyping and how, you know, Muslim women are presented. Um, I I personally don't see it changing anytime soon. Um, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Um, Whenever these conversations happen, I always end up worrying about the women in my family who, you know, I I have aunts who wear the niqab, um, and I have aunts who wear the hijab as well, and... um, um, I mean, my mum does, you know, so I think it really, you know, ends up the, the, the stress and the way sort of my body itself responds to the anxieties around these conversations is, is mostly to do with the protection of the women in my family and, and how much I fear anyone saying anything to them or attacking them. Um, but also, I think, you know, um, Oh, as Hajira said, I think we've got to also stop pandering to this idea that we need to continuously sort of prove our our ourselves and our humanity. And actually, when you indulge that, you've 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 you know inevitably then accepted the very premise of the fact that you aren't human so you're constantly trying to humanize yourself when and then when you do that you're actually then dehumanizing yourself uh, because in that process you you can't humanize yourself to someone who's already positioned you in a particular way um so i think this constant battle that muslim women in particular feel they need to do you know i never ever encourage the women in my life um, who are visible muslim women to ever indulge in that kind of politics because firstly we're better than that we don't need to do that and also you know um and for me you know uh, falling back on sort of religious arguments is essential like you know muslim women when they are visible muslim women you know we do a lot of the things we want to do um in public in the kind of work that we're involved with. Um because of you know we, we look back out you know hold our faith close to our heart and that then you know gives us a lot of our moral codes and ethical you know understandings of the world and how we consume it and how we treat people. So I think you know um, I think that's another thing that to keep in mind that you know that that religion plays a significant role in our lives and, and um, it uh, helps to shape and understand our purpose and our greater purpose in that sense as well and not to get too consumed by constantly trying to humanize ourselves because and I think the best example to give here is um, if when you look at um Franz Fanon who was a um, psychiatrist from the Caribbean island the French speaking Caribbean island Martinique he said in his book Black black skin white masks of how you belong in the zone of non-being or the zone of being and basically how the colonized subject will always belong in the zone of non-being you're never going to be entered into the zone of being and that will only happen when the Frenchman in this specific example of Martinique which was a French colonial uh, island colonized island that um, you know it's, it's the Frenchman determines that and the goalpost will continuously change so in our context us being three Bengali women is that, you know, our history is obviously tied with British, the British Empire in the Indian subcontinent, and that goalpost is going to continuously change, you know, it doesn't matter what role you hold in what office, uh, this will never change, uh, because uh, that that relational pattern and the power dynamic has already been established for centuries. And I don't think we can suddenly Completely subvert that, you know. Um, and, and I would never encourage, you know, Muslim women to ever want to indulge that kind of politics because Muslim women are, you know, they, they, they're worth so much more than just having to indulge people's um, weird ideas around uh, Muslim women's bodies. There's a,
1: a wider mainstream narrative that. Muslim women need to prove themselves to better adapt to the Western model of living of what feminism is meant to be. And that's why there's such a big divide between mainstream feminism and Muslim women, because they don't feel like they want to be part of that narrative because that narrative doesn't include them. It doesn't see them as as human beings. It constantly otherizes them. And I have these conversations with my with my cousin who who is a hijabi. She's been wearing the hijab and she was maybe 16 and um, something she'll never take off. Um, and her for her, the question has always been, oh, you're only doing this because clearly you want to, you know, abide. You're oppressed because you're abiding by um, you know, all the men in your life, or the Muslim men in your life are telling you what to do. But the fact of the matter is that she chose, she constantly she consciously chose to wear the hijab. Um, and it's her personal choice. So there's, there's there's insufficient respect for Muslim women and the fact that they make the choice to be religious, to wear the hijab. Um, and that's something that needs to be brought into the mainstream. But I think Muslim women, hijabi women particularly, are tired of having to always feel like they have to prove themselves. So there's a wider conversation to be had around educating ourselves, uh, non-Muslims, um, who don't really seem to want to accept that Muslim women can and are fully able to make their own choices. Um, And that's something that keeps seeing with the mainstream. Yeah, but
0: but I wouldn't. I mean, but that's the very thing I would not encourage Muslim women to do. It's like it's not your responsibility. No, exactly. Constantly answering questions. So I don't think that should be a thing Muslim women ever aspire to. And also the idea of uh, trying to merge Muslim women into some some constructed idea around uh, mainstream feminism. I mean, hell no, is my response. No way Uh, should we go anywhere near that kind of feminism that is not there um, to better women's lives. It's it's solely there to um, uphold the current structures in place already, you know, and just to be able to um, economically have access to things, you know, so uh, yeah, so for me, um, yeah, Muslim women don't need to be involved in any of that.
1: No, exactly. Um, I think the point I was trying to make that the education needs to come from people who are non-Muslim, who are also women, Um, And it's not the job of hijabi women to educate other people on how they live their lives. Um, And I think the respect needs to come from within those other communities, which don't recognize Muslim women as independent beings. Um, And I don't think that, yeah, I completely agree. I don't think it's their job to do that. Um, Because we never question, you know, mainstream feminism and why certain Western women behave the way they do. We never question that because they're they're too privileged for that you know they're 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 way above that for some reason so yeah there's definitely a wider conversation to be had around why that's the case but yeah again it's it's not fair to put um muslim women at the forefront of that and ask them to you know here you go here's the argument try and defend yourself because that's literally how they are positioned in mainstream television interviews uh radio interviews um so the narrative needs to change around that
0: I, I just I just uh, noticed um, you referenced the um, the BBC women's hour interview yeah, yeah I think I think that's a perfect example of how you know how Muslim women are treated in public and I think we've just got to remember don't ever ever think you need to humanize yourself I can't emphasize this point enough mm. um, uh, on this podcast that yeah Muslim women don't ever need to do that humanize themselves and make themselves you know talk about the fact that they're independent women we don't need yeah. to indulge any of that at all uh, no. so i i personally would not advocate that at all mm. yeah no absolutely no way um and
1: really interesting i had a another podcast conversation with um one of my really close friends who's jamaican and who's hijabi who's muslim uh her parents converted before she was born so she's been born into islam and she re- she you know abides by it she's very religious and um she you know she talks about being a black Muslim and what that means uh, for other communities who are Muslim as well. And one point that I reiterated in that conversation that we had this was back in um, season one so at the early days uh, when I started this podcast um and it was the fact that um one of my really close friends said to me um who wore, who wears the hijab, um, that you know if all the men in the world died today, I would still I would still wear the hijab um so maybe that helps illustrate the fact that muslim women make their own choices um but again as you've said there's no need for that narrative to be pushed in the way that we see muslim women always having to prove themselves to wider society so but yeah i just thought i'd mention that
2: that's really interesting actually because I mean, I don't want to go completely off topic because I know you're like wrapping up, but because even using that example, the hijab isn't a um, political statement. Like you do wear it wear it to cover yourself from your non-mahram. So if, there were, if all the men died tomorrow, you wouldn't have to wear it though. But not because the men are telling you to wear it. It's just because God, as far as I believe, told me to wear it to hide my certain features away from my non-mahram. So it's like, that's the thing that I find when you have to explain it to other people. And and I also want to be clear, I'm not at all like trying to, that's what your friend um, clearly believes in. That's cool. But for me, I feel like when, when I try and explain the hijab in relation to men, rather than trying to explain it in relation to God, then it becomes something it's not um so then I just don't I just don't bother explaining it to people if they don't get it there's plenty of resources out there for them to look into um I wear it because I want to and it's as simple as that yeah or I wear it because God told me to and it's as simple as that um and if if they don't believe in God or if they think that's oppressive or we're starting in a completely different place then like they're starting at a place where they don't even believe in God or so no matter what I do the fact that I believe in God is already oppressive so there's no win-win so i kind of it's just like wash my hands off the whole conversation I don't need it there's nothing further
1: to add there's no point wasting your energy exactly exactly (laughs) um yeah it's been a really interesting conversation and to be honest i could go on more yeah. and I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you could as well um but i've really enjoyed talking to you both and i've learned a lot from you i hope that you found this conversation interesting
0: <laughs> but um i just wanted to say tanya i just um thank you for having us and um and i hope people will listen to our uh, interventions on gentrification and um and the current unfoldings of uh, what's happening East London
1: yeah absolutely it
0: was a pleasure to have you both on Fatima and Hajira
1: thank you so much for being here and I hope that you both enjoyed it
2: yeah thank you for having us
1: yeah thank you so much for having us I hope you enjoyed that episode if you know someone who you think might like this podcast then please let them know about it if you enjoyed this episode please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Earlier this year, I created a Patreon. I produce and host this podcast entirely on a voluntary basis, all on my own. If you enjoy listening and have benefited from this podcast, then please consider supporting it so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a shout-out to four of my lovely Patreon donors, Abigail, Rihanna and Alicia, as well as my fiancé, Nathan. Thank you so much to all of you. If you'd also like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash brown don't frown pod. If you have any thoughts or comments, or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast, please drop us a line at... Pods at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye.